0: This past weekend in Minnesota provided a bit of a disappointment for anyone who wanted to go outside for personal refreshment. While it wasn't the coldest it can be, and it can be very cold in Minnesota at this time of the year, it was kind of a mix of cold wind and moisture that made it unlikely anybody would be able to enjoy winter sports, go for a run, go for a walk, or even hike without getting wet and cold and miserable. So really, it wasn't quite worth the effort. And so I sank to the low of watching a movie via a streaming service inside my house. And I hate to admit this, but I selected one of the last of the Terminator Mm -hmm. movies. (laughs) I think everyone's aware of that movie or that whole series. You know, the plot line, Uh artificial intelligence is developed that will supposedly improve humankind's quality of life and improve global safety. But then the artificial intelligence kind of decides that man is the problem and it sets about exterminating mankind. Genesis is Skynet, and Skynet is the end of the world. It it really makes one think. Well, today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, as it turns out. The application of technology to healthcare is certainly not new. I remember way back when I was a resident just starting that I was exposed to various new applications of technology. Back then, it was things like having the computer trend vital signs and make nice graphs for us and maybe even follow changes in the EKG. Uh, ST elevations and things like that. It was the start. The technology recorded the data, but most of the inferences were still really being handled by us flawed humans, residents and attending physicians and nurses. Now, since information is expanding exponentially, it's really the right time to think about how advanced machine learning can help us make better sense of all that data. Not only can some of the mundane tasks be automated, But machine learning, which is one form of artificial intelligence, can in many cases find correlations that we don't usually see. Now, why is that important? Well, currently, many organizations are talking about artificial intelligence, but they're not applying these tools for quality and safety. But AI, or artificial intelligence, holds the potential to be a real game changer in these areas. I think a lot of the mundane tasks of tracking incidents, complaints, surveys, audits, These kind of things can be automated, where automation is simply the use of software to kind of track data. But artificial intelligence is really a little bit more than that. It's using science in the software that can help mimic or even do a better job of the human reasoning and analysis. So when you have large sources of data, like the huge amount of data that's now stored in the electronic health record, it can be harnessed in a way to bring new meaning. Today, I've invited some experts that are going to talk about one of the examples of implementing artificial intelligence to improve patient safety. This particular application involves the development of a way to provide prospective risk analysis using the data that's already there in the health record. Using these kinds of data to improve those risk analyses can help us focus our resources more effectively to prevent patient harm. And what are we trying to improve in? The prevention of pressure injuries in hospitalized patients. So, welcome to Key into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast focusing on healthcare quality, patient experience, and affordability. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler, the Vice Chair of Quality at Mayo Clinic. Co hosting today's conversation is Sherry Nemec. Sherry?
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Morgenthaler, I do remember all the Terminator movies and how disconcerting the idea of machines taking over the world was at the time, but I am excited to hear about what we're going to talk about today. So as we continue to learn how we can benefit from artificial intelligence and how we care and provide care for our patients.
0: Yeah, no, thanks, Sherry. So today our guests are Dr. Kira Lipitoff and Dr. Kanna Ramar. Now, these are two special friends of mine from my own division at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. What's exciting to me is not only their topic, but the fact that, you know, Dr. Lipitoff is actually one of our fellows in the Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, who's doing really phenomenal research in this area. And it's really cool to see that research already being applied to improve patient care. Dr. Ramar is a long-term friend and also is one of Dr. Lipatov's mentors and is Mayo Clinic's Chief Patient Safety Officer. So it's really neat to see clinical care, research, education all coming together in today's podcast And a a great outcome. Dr. Lipitov, could you please tell us a bit of your background and just how you got interested in this project? Absolutely. Thank you very much
2: again for inviting me. My name is Kirill Lipitov. As as you mentioned, I'm one of the pulmonary care fellows here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Omar uh, has definitely been my mentor through this process. I've worked in the lab with Dr. Vitaly Hirasevich, who has been working in informatics and machine learning here at Mayo Clinic for a very long time. He has a robust lab with many, many different projects. I was interested in informatics in general and artificial intelligence in particular during my research year, and I've primarily done some studies on critically ill patients trying to help with recognizing quickly deteriorating patients or patients who have not been diagnosed with conditions that need urgent interventions in order to improve outcomes. And then Dr. Ramar reached out to my mentor, uh, Dr. Horacevich, in our lab, and he had an interesting question whether the artificial intelligence and machine learning can uh, actually be used not just in research or in clinical practice, but rather in, in quality improvement. And this was very exciting. We've never tried anything like this. And we thought that there is robust enough data to, to give it a try.
0: Yeah, well, so thanks so much for that. And uh, how about uh, Dr. Amar? You know, How long have you worked at Mayo? What's your role in this project and in other matters, patient safety at Mayo?
3: Thank you, Tim, for this invitation. Wonderful to be here. So I've been at Mayo Clinic for 15 years. And um, as Tim pointed out, I've been a, a good friend of Tim, and he's been my mentor throughout my career out here as well too and i've been serving as a chief patient safety officer for the last couple of years by the way tim i didn't watch the movie terminator before i got this idea for using ai in pressure injuries but that's a wonderful story that i need to keep in mind for future use the pressure injuries i think as we all very well know has been an ongoing issue and problem for our patients, particularly in patients. And though we continue to see this as an ongoing issue, we haven't necessarily come up with good ways to either prevent and or to address them. And so thinking differently and trying to work differently is how this idea came about in terms of maybe we might have an opportunity to address this through AI. And knowing some of the work that uh, Dr. Hersovich had done related to sepsis, uh, along with Dr. Brian Pickering and, and his group, and knowing Carol's interest, strong interest in informatics and AI, we decided to approach Carol and his group, along with Vitaly, to see if this is something that we could use this as an opportunity to find a predictive and or a prescriptive model to address uh, pressure injuries moving forward.
0: That's very, very clever of you, Dr. Amar. Hiro, you know, I think we've gotten a little bit of background on how you first got interested in this particular problem. Let me just ask, you know, so, okay, here's this problem. How did you get started working on it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So in our mind, we thought of a supervised machine learning model where essentially we have two subsets of patients here at Mayo Clinic, ones that have developed a pressure injury during their stay and the ones that have not. And then we want to teach this model to recognize uh, the former versus the latter based on all the various data points that we have available. So I first started mining every possible risk factor for pressure injury from literature, national guidelines, and just experience here at Mayo Clinic, looking at the root cause analysis data that Dr. Ramar graciously provided us. And we've collected a laundry list of different features. We then went back and looked at first historic data and see if we can build a model that just based on historic lab values and different clinical data points could come up with a reasonable accuracy in in determining which patients have developed pressure injuries and which haven't. And we were surprised to find that over 90% sensitivity and specificity is the result that we've got. So then we went ahead and got a better sample Uh, We've got actually validated patients that went through the pressure injury group and were indeed uh, confirmed manually through the chart review to have developed pressure injuries in the hospital just here in Rochester. And then we repeated the same uh, analysis and the results again were quite encouraging. So then we went ahead and improved our model, retrained it and ultimately validated through the enterprise data, again, we were able to achieve very high accuracy uh, with various different model types.
0: Hey, Carol, I, I'm going to interrupt you just for a minute here because you sort of eat, breathe, and drink data analysis and this sort of thing for breakfast, but some of our listeners you know, may not be all that familiar with some of the terms that you just expressed. You know, I'm wondering, when you talk about developing a model, is it a bit like maybe somebody develops a credit score on us, you know, they take into account, you know, like how many credit cards we have and how well we've paid our debts in the past and, uh, you know, how many loans we have and they give us a credit score. So that supposedly is going to help them know more about how credit worthy we are. Is that kind of what you're talking about with a model?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. It all ultimately goes down to basic math. And if you can recall from the very early algebra, there was this linear equation, which is supposed to depict in a, in a numerical and I guess letter form, a straight line. And if you think about it, if, if you have a very heterogeneous patient population, You can literally draw a straight line across and separate the two populations. In this case, the equation that describes this line would be this very primitive model. Now, as you can imagine, our our patients are much more homogenous in terms of many features or many clinical parameters. And so our equation has to be significantly more complex in order to be able to say yes In this huge forest of all these numbers that depict their heart rates, their prior diagnoses, their neurologic dysfunction, and things like that, how can we come up with one equation, very large equation, that if we plug in any patient's values, we would be able to get, as a result, a score that will put them in either a category that is a high risk for pressure injuries or is not. And that's what ultimately model development boils down to. I want to give a disclosure that I am not a machine learning scientist myself. I do not personally write these models, thankfully, but I've been very fortunate to work alongside with Dr. Doe, who is indeed a programmer and, and her specialty is indeed machine learning model. So I picked up as much as possible from her in terms of kind of how it all works, but uh, don't expect me to try to program one.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that, that's really was going to be the next question I was going to ask you is, I know that you are a great pulmonary and critical care physician in training and uh, almost done with your training, by the way. Who did you all involve in this effort? Because I don't think when you were coming into Mayo Clinic, I don't think I remember seeing on your CV data scientists. So you've obviously interacted with a team of people to make this all happen. Maybe you could describe that a little bit.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think that My experience in many ways depicts how in future uh, such efforts could develop in the most fruitful way. You know, there is a quite a bit of a gap right now between the very technologically focused groups of data scientists and programmers who are fantastic and phenomenal at developing these models, probably to the point that at some point they could take over the world as you described in the Terminator movies. And yet many of them have very little clinical experience. And I think that for them, it's quite a shock whenever they delve into clinical data to realize how incomplete in many ways it is and how subjective many of our findings are. And it is incredibly difficult for them to just come up with simple math to plug data in and be able to predict uh, certain medical conditions. And so to bridge that gap, I think there is a generation of both physicians and and data scientists that are coming up that hopefully can provide a lot of clinical context to some of these mathematical models and, and make these models much more clinically useful. So for me, the most important piece was, of course, The programming piece, and like I said, Dr. Doe was very instrumental in development of this model. But then later on, as we're trying to roll this model out and test it further in the living and breathing EPIC environment, there is a whole group of nursing informatics and physician informatics, folks that are helping us out, data scientists, folks that are involved with uh, uh, cloud and the AI factory here at Mayo Clinic, all are involved in both deploying the model and making sure that it could be maintained further.
1: I will say I've never been very good at math, so that would be a big barrier for me in doing any of this kind of work. And other than the interdependencies you just mentioned about having the team with these very specific skill sets, were there any other big challenges that you ran into along the way?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the most important part for me was to provide the most true-to-life clinical context to this model. And as much as I'm exposed to pressure injuries and how much of a safety risk they could be for hospitalized patients, I don't actively work with pressure injuries in terms of their treatment diagnosis. And so I was very fortunate, again, uh, through Dr. Romart to be part of big pressure injury task force, if you may, here at Mayo Clinic at all the different levels, both enterprise and here in Rochester. And they were extremely helpful in digesting all the different risk factors for pressure injuries and being able to come up with the list that would make most sense for the model. It took some time also going back once I had that list to see whether these are some of the parameters and, and risk factors that are commonly documented on our patients are they going to be readily available for this model to be able to come up on the go with this uh, risk score and you know going back it, it required a little bit of uh, you know data mining and trying to see which ones are most feasible which ones are most objective and so on and so forth
0: so you know, along those lines, Carol, I I know you did the literature search first and you read all the literature and and you know I'm I'm fairly familiar with that literature. And then you go do this project. What were your surprises as you started letting the machine surface some things for you?
2: There are many surprises. I think one of the major ones is how, again, heterogeneous the patient population is that is at risk for pressure injuries, and how folks who are otherwise very, very healthy and don't have any chronic conditions that would predispose them to pressure injuries would end up in a situation in the hospital where in this specific circumstance, they are put at risk. And you can track back and see as much of a documentation as has been done in risk assessment, the conventional tools are, are simply not able to capture these patients as the ones at risk. And in many ways, again, as, as many policies and procedures that are in place to prevent pressure injuries, in these patients we've sometimes caught off guard, how do we one, find them, and to institute these measures appropriately and track our progress with them. And then loading the same patient data set into the model, somehow it comes up with a pretty good prediction most of the
0: time. So really what you're saying is that a lot of what's out there in the literature, if we only apply that, we would probably miss a lot of people who are at risk and that the model, because it's kind of looking at things differently, as Dr. Ramar said, it's actually coming up with a bit more accurate of, of risk assessments. Is that accurate, what I just said?
2: Yeah, and and I think, you know, in my mind, again, I'm, I look at it somewhat simplistically. It all boils down to math. I think that the math and statistics that have been originally used for so many years to derive these clinical models that are in place right now, although they have a great track record going back, they're simply being replaced with more advanced models, more accurate models that just have a little bit of more of that
0: predictive power behind them. So what's the current state of the project then? You have this theoretical background, you've produced these models. I think just a few minutes ago, you mentioned that it's kind of being interwoven into our electronic health record EPIC operating environment. What's the current state of this project?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The model is already deployed in one of the cloud spots that EPIC operates in. And we're testing it out not in the current production uh, Epic environment, not in the EMR that we use every day, but in kind of a clone of it on a, in a separate uh, space. And we're seeing whether it performs as well as we're hoping, or we're seeing whether we need to retrain it again because. You know, the original data that we derived it on uh, has been a few months back. So our patient population changes and the model accuracy may change as well. So it periodically needs to be retrained. And we're seeing whether there are any hiccups in terms of the model displaying the results. And also working with a large team of folks who are actively at bedside dealing with pressure injuries, in terms of determining how would the result representation be most effective for them, most useful, who should be notified of these results. And what are perhaps some of the individual features of each patient that are important to highlight in order to act quickly and, and try to prevent pressure injuries? So again, we're hoping that quite soon it will into the, the actual production EMR, and it will not just simply show the one number score for the patient, but rather highlight some of the actionable features that these folks have that could be intervened upon early and hopefully prevent pressure injuries. I think that's a very important part of it that has evolved over the last few months, where we went back from from just having a high score to actually being able to say, hey, not only does this is this patient at risk, but also these are some of the things that are currently being missed in terms of pressure injury prevention.
0: So you're really talking about moving from, let's say, predictive analytics into maybe a little bit more proscriptive. Uh, output from the from the whole thing. I'm going to actually direct these next questions to Dr. Ramar a little bit. What do you think are the next steps, and what are you worried about with this project? As
3: Carol pointed out during the initial testing phase, we he noted an accuracy rate of 95%. That was a big surprise when I saw the results when I first came across it, and we needed to make sure that this predictive model was as good as it was being told that it was. And so it was validated retrospectively in a couple of other samples. But moving forward, we need to make sure that we also do a prospective validation of this model and inculcate some of the other potential risk factors that we may or may not have captured at the initial phase, for example, COVID-19. Some of the modeling was based on pre-COVID patients. Actually, most of them were pre-COVID patients, so we need to make sure that the modeling does include COVID as a potential risk factor moving forward. So we are partnering with Kern Center, and once this model is in place within APEC, our plan is to prospectively validate this moving forward and, and make some iterations if needed to make this model even better than where it stands currently.
0: So what impact do you think this is going to have on pressure injuries at Mayo Clinic and, you know, in the coming years?
3: Our goal, as we started off to begin with, is to hopefully eliminate, if not at least, to reduce pressure injuries in our hospitalized patients and thereby overall decrease morbidity and mortality, including cost of care. And that's the ultimate goal. And as we put this model into practice, through our pressure injury prevention team, which includes our our nursing colleagues, we will need to probably make some changes to the modeling to make sure that we are able to capture things ahead of time. So we wanna make sure that we implement what we see on the scores from the modeling that would then subsequently prevent patients from developing these injuries moving forward.
1: I'm gonna direct this last question to either one of you that wants to respond. If I'm an organization that maybe doesn't have all the wonderful resources that Mayo has, if I want to get started and work in this area, what, what would be some recommendations or thoughts that you would give back to them?
3: Carol highlighted a lot of important points, and I'll just highlight a few of them, uh, Sherry, that might touch upon the question that you're putting forth. One, I think it's important to define the problem that's set in place because before you use AI machine learning, you want to make sure that you have a problem that you want to take care of that hopefully will be addressed through AI and ML. Second, the stakeholder group should be multidisciplinary. It just can't be the data scientists. It just can't be the clinicians. It may need to be all providers, including other stakeholder groups that are gonna be needed. Third, you need to have a team that'll own this model moving forward and take responsibility and accountability for that model. If that buy-in is not obtained right at the beginning, then the model, when it's developed, may not have a house or a home to go to, and then it's not going to be of any use. So I'll stop there, and I'll see if Carol wants to add anything further to that.
2: Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, I think that one of the key lessons that I learned from Dr. Horacevich, working with him on multiple uh, informatics projects, is that you can develop all sorts of models and scores, and they can very beautifully pop up in our EMR but unless you have a um, actual goal in mind as to where the score is supposed to go who will see the numbers that that you're trying to depict and and have a workflow in mind of how the score is going to be acted on it's just going to contribute
0: to noise instead of providing valuable information so yeah absolutely so so maybe maybe the way to phrase that very simplistically is Know what you want, but also know the so what with what you want so that you actually know what you're going to do with that, that piece of information.
3: Right. Yeah, that's a great perfectly point.
0: Put. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, you guys, you know, we could go on a long time, but unfortunately, we have a limited amount of time for this podcast. This has really been interesting. I just find this a fascinating development in so many ways, and I really appreciate you all coming and sharing your knowledge with us. For those who've been listening, we've come to the end of our podcast. We're really glad that you could join us. We hope that this information is insightful and valuable to you as you think about how to improve quality in the populations that you serve. The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations striving to improve. Our goal is to improve quality for the patients and the populations that we all serve. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help us by rating it on your podcast platform and also share it with others in your organization so that the information can be spread. Until next time, goodbye. Oh, oh,